This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One of the big questions is, what is money? For practical purposes, it exists in a series of uh, heterogeneous databases, very different databases. Do you believe in crypto? Digital currency may be an answer. But it is the highly speculative asset. I do own Bitcoin. There is no second past. Welcome to the Crypto Curious Podcast, designed to help you navigate the dynamic world of cryptocurrency. Hello, my name is Tracy, and today we've got a very special edition of Crypto Curious. Today, Blake and I are joined by Daniel Roberts, the CEO and founder of Iris Energy. Yeah, that's right, Tracy. Iris Energy is a Bitcoin miner, and we're going to hear a little bit more about crypto mining and the industry. And it is a rapidly evolving space and feels like a whole other industry than what we're in. But first, Blake, before we get into the interview, can you give us a little bit more background on who Iris Energy are? and how they fit into this crypto space. Yeah, Iris Energy describes itself as a Bitcoin mining company and they build and operate big data centers just for the purpose of of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin mining. Um, And their focus is drawing their energy from renewable sources. And in this sense, they're one of the world's, if not the world's largest sustainable Bitcoin miner. Um, And this company um, mines Bitcoins, but instead of just connecting to the grid and paying for the energy costs, they're mindful about where their energy is sourced. So today, um, we're going to speak with the CEO, Daniel Roberts, and talk about the vision of the business, how they operate, and the importance of Bitcoin as an asset class. Yeah, I think Daniel is you know, a super nice guy, and this is a really interesting interview, so we hope you all enjoy. Welcome. So today, Blake and I are really pleased and excited to be joined by Iris Energy co-founder and co-CEO Daniel Roberts. So welcome, Dan, to the Crypto Curious podcast and thank you for joining us today. So I've actually followed your journey and Blake uh, for a little while and we would love to do a bit of an intro, but we thought it'd be best to get you to do the intro and do a bit of justice and explain a little bit of background on yourself and Iris Energy. That'd be great. Sure. And thanks for having me, Tracy and Blake. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here. So Bit of background, very, I guess, traditional career prior to entering into the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, started life at PwC, worked at Macquarie, Australian Investment Bank, uh, who no doubt a number of your listeners uh, are familiar with, across Sydney and London, developing infrastructure, renewable energy projects, so wind farms, solar farms across Europe. Was then involved in co-founding an infrastructure funds management business about a decade ago called Palisade, right place, right time. We grew to around six billion US in in assets, so ports, airports, wind farms, solar farms, gas pipelines, etc. So, largely deploying superannuation, uh, pension fund, insurance company, long dated money in long dated infrastructure assets. My brother Will and co-founder, he um, he was also at Macquarie. Uh, doing structured products into traditional mining businesses, so gold, copper, iron ore, etc. 
and for the last 12 months uh, he was at Macquarie back in 2017, 2018 was involved in uh, helping set up their digital assets team. So involved with the CME Bitcoin futures when they were launched uh, late 2017. They deployed balance sheet in Bitcoin mining many, many years ago. But I think it's fair to say their appetite probably started to cool with the broader market um, around that time, kind of early to mid-2018. So at that point, we all jumped out, we teamed up, and um, that was the genesis of Iris Energy. Wow, what a journey. And w- when did you first start participating with in the Bitcoin ecosystem? When did you start becoming interested in it? So I think I first bought on the run up to $1,000-ish in 2013. But like everyone, you kind of, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but it's not uncommon to see the price action go parabolic and go, what's this? You kind of buy a few and, and then it comes off. And I was one of those person people where as the market kind of plummeted 50, 80%, thought this is nonsense and sold it all. Um, uh. <laughs> and it wasn't for a couple of years that it kind of came back. I went into the Ethereum pre-sale, um, did, did well out of that, obviously. Um, then 2017, I guess I'd seen a cycle or two and go, hang on, this thing's here to stay. If it's here to stay and there's really only 21 million of them, then how does this not just keep accruing value um, over time? And then you overlay the whole... QE, central bank, currency debasement, race to zero interest rates, and you go, gee whiz, this could be one of the greatest, um, I guess, events um, in a very long time so far as kind of human um, economic progress. Yeah, I certainly think that that happens to a lot of people. It takes one or two cycles to start understanding how it functions and how to how to position yourself for, you know, hopefully better for the next cycle. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, crypto is one of those asset classes where everyone's got a a sales pitch, right? There's lots of vested interest. Everyone's trying to launch a coin. Sometimes it's boring um, and there's not a lot of gain personally for people to go out and I guess it communicate what Bitcoin is versus another coin that they've created for another specific purpose. So there's a lot of misinformation out there at times and it is hard for, you know, the average um, Joe, who's got a career and busy with family to, to try and decipher what exactly is going on. But I, I think one of the benefits today is there's a lot of quality literature and discourse in the market. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, when you know, you got into Bitcoin and Ethereum, there were only, you know, a handful of really prominent projects. And now, you know, there's literally thousands and thousands of them. And, um, you know, now there's sub-industries with their own dynamics, which is, um, you know, fascinating in its own right. So maybe we can um, take it back to Iris and just talk about the vision of the business and what you're trying to achieve and tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so maybe before I touch on Iris, it's probably worth touching on Bitcoin mining as a sector and an industry because, again, it's probably another subsector within the asset class that hasn't been well understood and almost more importantly has hit this inflection point or sharp pivot in the last one, two years where everything that was important for the first decade of Bitcoin's existence is not the same thing that's necessarily important for the next decade. And what it largely relates to is two things. One is the relative commoditization of technology on the computing power. So how fast the computers are relative to the learning curve we've seen over the first decade. Basically, the gains are becoming smaller and smaller relative to where we've been in the past. So hardware is lasting longer and longer. The second thing is, As Bitcoin gets big, it gets really hard to bring online mining supply to normalize profits. When Bitcoin was small, 
when you had, say, 10 megawatts of power many, many years ago securing this network, and Bitcoin goes on one of its 5, 10x runs, the world can bring online another 50, 100 megawatts worth of power and chips, and they find the money to bring online enough supply to normalize those returns. But we've entered a fundamentally different paradigm in recent. Okay, I'm I'm getting I'm actually getting what you're putting out here, but I want to go back a step because that's really interesting to me. But I think for the people out there who kind of have limited exposure to the concept of mining, can we give maybe an overall view or a abridged version of that for them? Yeah, what is Bitcoin mining? Yeah, um, <laughs> mining this magic internet money. I, I had <laughs> I had a friend who will remain nameless when we set up the business saying, "So how does it work? Do you open up like?" <laughs> Google Chrome and look around the internet for these Bitcoins? And I said, no, not quite. <laughs> um, but look, again, it, it's actually really simple when you boil it down. Basically, every 10 minutes, the protocol, the software, generates a random number. All these computers around the world use trial and error to guess that random number. First computer to do so wins a few hundred gram worth of Bitcoin. Process starts again. That is it. There is no edge. It's all probabilistic. The more computers you have, the more Bitcoin you will receive. So if you've got 1% of the global computing power, then like any other probabilistic enterprise, you'll get 1% of the Bitcoin. And we don't take risk on that dice rolling analogy or tail flipping analogy that you might hear because you've got these mining pools and organizations that essentially aggregate computing power at scale, take on that uh, probability or luck risk and guarantee you a fixed daily payout. So every day, we're getting to work, the expected number of Bitcoin is sitting there, and at the moment we're liquidating that directly for cash and reinvesting it in uh, growing our business. And that's where you in particular have had that, uh, that background, that deep knowledge in renewables over your career, and then you say that you've kind of come into, you know, the 2017-18, touched on Bitcoin and crypto, and then so Iris kind of came, came from that. It was just kind of the evolution for you going that way. Yeah, particularly with the, the hardware, like we're not tech guys or software guys, right? There's all sorts of people that are really good at that, developing ASICs and these special chips. The point is that they've now caught traditional computing with that technology. Um, the Bitcoin mining manufacturers are competing with the likes of Google and Amazon to get seven and five nanometer wafers from TSMC and Samsung. So what that means is the battleground in this sector has now fundamentally shifted away from who's got the fastest computer to who can build out large-scale infrastructure operations and access institutional capital markets to get the benefits of scale. That's a really good point. And, you know, Bitcoin mining used to be something for hobbyists, and that certainly changed over the last five years. And now it's certainly commercialized and changing so quickly from the you know, hardware race to an energy race to you know, being in a location where it's stable. Like, it's, it seems like it's a, it's a hard sector to navigate. Yeah, that's right. And look, it's, it's full of opportunity, right? Because the size of the profitability is enormous because of those real-world challenges that you outline. Um, you know, given what Bitcoin's done over the last couple of years, you need roughly 25, 30 gigawatts more of power to try and normalize mining profits. The entire global data center industry is only 23. Like people are just starting to wrap their heads around the order of magnitude of what, where this sector now is positioned. Sorry, I, on that, I just want to be able to explain to the listener about what we talk about when we talk about these magnitudes, because... So, for example, when I met up with a bunch of guys who were mining, say, four or five years ago in a warehouse in Northbridge in Perth, and they had 
some minds that were hanging in a closet that were, you know, little boxes. Um, that's the first time I'd seen anything like it. And they were hanging there, like these shoebox looking things that were all, you know, bright, you know, bright little lights bubbling away. And I have, I really have no idea how much they were mining or what they were getting at the time, but it was, you know, it was all, it was a lot. And now when we look at the Iris Energy website and there's these amazing big buildings that you've got there, you know, that are f- full of this computing power on such a massive grand scale, I can't quite wrap my head around, you know, when you talk around megawatts, exactly what the difference is there. And that's a real layman terms way of doing it. But can you explain exactly what is going on? Absolutely. So um, I think, as you're alluding to, it's a scale game now. Like you still can make some money mining at home or retail power, just given the profitability of it. But over the long term, it's obviously a lot more cost competitive to do this at scale. Um, get wholesale power prices, tap into marginal cost renewables, access institutional capital markets, etc. But to give you an idea of scale. We talk a bit about the 15 exahash worth of computing power that we have on order, and that's been progressively delivered. Some of it's operating. Um, that's 150,000 computers. That requires around 500 megawatts of power, and if it was all plugged in today, would be generating, we call it 800 million bucks, give or take, in annualized mining profit. And is that like 150,000 regular computers or is this 150,000 like Bitcoin mining computers that have different capacity? Yeah, they're a bit bigger than normal computers. Um, they're each three kilowatts in size. And again, I might be confusing people by referring back to the energy metric, but they're probably the size, a little bit bigger of your old, remember your old desktop computers where you had the hard drive on the floor and the monitor. They're probably a little bit bigger than the hard drive on the floor, each one of those. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, well, yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit more about your farms and um, where they are and, you know, why you chose those those places. I guess we spent a lot of time thinking about where we want to build a business. And, you know, three and a half, four years ago, people were saying, you know, you need to go to Iran, you need to go to Venezuela, China, because you've got really cheap power. And like, oh, I'm not really sure that's that's the idea. And, you know, in, in hindsight, we uh, we did well. Not to and stick true to our knitting, which is, you know, Western uh, countries largely, but institutional grade, good jurisdiction, stability of law, um, etc. And there's an interesting anecdote here. I haven't got the chart at hand, but I saw it based on the gold sector, where if you look at the top five countries by lowest cost gold, you'll see one set of countries, which is quite diverse. And then if you look at the top five gold producing nations, it's all the big Western industrial uh, countries, Canada, US, Australia. At the end of the day, capital markets talk, right, and access to, to capital. So it was very clear to us, focus on good quality jurisdictions that are going to attract capital. But we then said, not only do we need to focus on renewables, like the whole world's going that way. For us, it was a no-brainer. But let's also make sure that we only enter markets where our energy consumption is actually solving problems and delivering social good and positive externalities above and beyond us just monetizing this digital asset really profitably. So that manifests itself two discrete ways. So in British Columbia, they've got an oversupply of hydro, still building large scale dams in the north of the province in the face of declining manufacturing industrial loads, like a lot of these Western economies, the pulp and paper industry's really been decimated over the last five, 10 years. 
The issue with an oversupply of power in a regulated market is someone needs to pay for all the generation and transmission networks. So the default position is power prices need to go up to allow the person, the utility, who built all that infrastructure to earn a return on all the capital they've deployed. So we come in, mop up a lot of that surplus hydro, provide BC Hydro an alternative revenue line to alleviate the pressure to go and charge mums and dads and other industries more. We then go back into these regional communities where they've had a pulp mill or a sawmill closed down, leverage some of the sunk capex in the electrical infrastructure and bring back a level of economic activity and jobs. And sure, we don't employ as many people as the pulp and paper industry, but we are a reasonable employer and we are bringing activity back to those towns. Mm. Yeah, so I can see that you have, you know, you're building, a, a, you have some um, mining facilities in Canada and you're also building in Texas. Um, why Texas? So Texas is a really interesting market. It is enormous. I was there last week and the sheer scale of what's happening there in terms of renewable energy that's been built and is already permitted and likely to be built over the next five years is astounding. It's something like 40 gigawatts in the planning stage that could be built over the next five years. The issue there is, like we've seen in many markets, Australia's not immune, where over the last kind of five, 10 years, you've seen government decarbonisation policies really focus on the supply side. So let's provide an incentive to build wind and solar projects. And there hasn't necessarily been a market mechanism. There are a lot of subsidies, whether it's uh, renewable energy certificates, feed-in tariffs, whatever the mechanism. But what you've done is push a lot of this intermittent generation onto the grid, which is unpredictable. You, a, you've got an oversupply, and B, you've got this intraday issue where when the wind blows and the sun shines, there's a bucket load of power. But if there's a weather event or a network outage, then all of a sudden the lack of resilience in the market is becoming a real issue. Like we no longer have that consistent, reliable, baseload fossil fuel generation that we can rely on. So this is where we come into the second way we support markets, which is we can operate flexibly. We can remotely throttle up and down the frequency of these chips and dynamically adjust their energy consumption. So they're the perfect demand side battery. So when the wind's blowing, the sun's shining, we mop up all that curtailed power at times, negative priced power at times. And then when there is a weather event or a network outage, like the Texas Big Freeze, we can just throttle back the frequency of these chips, reduce the energy consumption, A, avoid those high power prices, B, in some markets get paid for the privilege of doing so, but more importantly, start smoothing out the volatility in these markets for the benefit of the broader grid. So it's helping renewables become more economical, really. Absolutely, because we're almost stuck in this chicken and the egg situation where if we want to keep building wind farms, keep building solar farms, then we either need the taxpayer to cough up more dollars to give to them, mm. um, or we need a market price mechanism to incentivise it. We provide that market price mechanism. And you can't retire the gas and the coal and the fossil fuels because you haven't got enough renewables, but you can't build enough renewables because you haven't got a market price. So either the taxpayer just keeps coughing up the bucks or we go in and solve two problems, price discovery for renewables and economic incentive to build it and the system flexibility issues so we don't have to build expensive lithium-ion batteries and gas-fired peaking power stations to manage those peaks and troughs. Well, I think we're having a system kind of flexibility issue here in Perth, where we're having a problem with the actual grid because of the oversupply, because in, in a 
say in April, for example, where we're having a few really hot days and everyone has solar here and people aren't using their um, air conditioning and there's just too much supply and the grid's just not dealing with it. So there's all these problems popping up. It is, and it's also been exacerbated by the rollout of residential rooftop solar as well. Again, heavily subsidised, where like net demand's fallen off a cliff. Like there's no demand at a household level during those times because they're generating all the power themselves. But I was going to ask maybe for a bit of an overview of the state of the mining industry as a whole. You said that Texas has got a bit of a hold hold on it there in the US. But um, you know, what are your thoughts after China's banned it and it kind of has moved that way? At the end of the day, there's no. I was going to say reliable data. Like there's no. It's not like the aluminium smelting industry where you can go to one of the consultants and commission a report that breaks down every facility into their cost quartile, location, capacity, etc. At the end of the day, you don't know. Like there's no objective data points other than the blockchain, how quickly they're solving blocks, how hard it is to solve blocks, and then inferring from that how much computing power is securing it. To then go the next step and say, well, what countries are mining and what aren't, it's really just levels of anecdotes and discussions in the market. For what it's worth, my impression is that the China ban, did it really result in a lot of Chinese miners leaving the country? The hash rate responded pretty quickly and there was a lot of power required or, or are people finding more temporary ways to mine in China that maybe not necessarily consistent with what's being communicated? I, I do think the industry is moving outside of China. Like I, I don't get the sense that anyone mining inside of China is seen as a long-term sustainable move to have all their eggs in that basket. But but to assume that it's all closed down there, I'm not so sure. Uh, markets like Kazakhstan have grown. Again, you know, we, we had a um, Twitter Spaces uh, with a couple of hundred people yesterday and a few people mining Kazakhstan talking about the political risk of that market and potential taxes and licences required. You then hear about a little bit in Venezuela, but look, I think far and away, the growth is happening in North America, Canada and the US and Texas being one of the largest power markets in the world um, with that renewable energy dynamic and that extreme build out um, is attracting a lot of the sector. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you know, is there any data or do you have any inkling of you know what percentage of crypto mining is sustainable? You know, there's a lot of different thoughts on that. You know, people say it's, you know, there's barely any and other people say there's um, you know, a substantial amount of the hashing rate is sustainable. What's your thoughts on that? It's, again, it's hard to know. And look, we've looked at it through the lens of not just renewables, but also making sure that we're using excess power. And if you look at it through that lens, renewables is the cheapest cost power like there is very little cheaper power than marginal cost wind or marginal cost solar right that no one else wants so i think the the sector is naturally moving that way because of those economic incentives in terms of the sector more broadly it's really hard to know I, i do find it amusing that there's such a focus on bitcoin and how it uses energy whereas like what other technology gets this criticism like people choose to watch netflix instead of playing a board game people choose to use a clothes dryer instead of hanging their washing outside and in new south wales that's 75 percent coal-fired power like but you know people don't want to hear that argument i think it comes from a basis of if you don't believe bitcoin has value and you don't want other people to think it has value then any energy consumption is a waste of energy so i'm not going to engage with you so it's a really hard argument to, to engage with 
Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I've been hearing a little bit about something called immersion mining recently and that the industry is moving in that direction. And that's the process of people submerging crypto miners into tanks, um, which helps with cleaning and with heat and cooling. Um, and also, you know, you could potentially get you know, more value from each machine out of that using this method. Is that something that you're looking at or is that the direction that the, the sector is moving in? Yeah, as, you, as you're explaining it, I'm smirking just thinking, gee whiz, why would you, why would you dunk these chips in transformer oil? <laughs> You've got to be pretty confident that it works. Look, there are a lot of theoretical benefits, right? You can overclock and get greater hashing out of them because the heat dissipation is more effective. If they're not exposed to the elements, in theory, they'll last longer. But we are still really early in this industry. I've heard firsthand, you know, some uh, not great stories about the chip integrity um, dunked in that in that fluid. I think over the longer term, it completely makes sense to keep exploring it and see the benefits. But for us, we've built this whole business on risk management, and we've got a fantastic. Um, traditional air-cooled design that is consistently getting rated the top by the analysts in terms of operating efficiency. So the number of Bitcoin we mine per computer is above anyone else in the public space, um, according to these analysts. So why risk it? Why kick an own goal? So we'll we'll keep looking at it. We'll do some R&D, but we're certainly not rushing into it. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about your strategy around your liquidation? Yeah, sure. So it's something we've had a few questions around because a lot of other listed miners just keep the Bitcoin that they mine. We're, we're certainly not averse um, to it, but I just think it makes more sense to do otherwise and liquidate today. Um, I'll give you a piece of data. So we can liquidate a Bitcoin today for about 40,000 US and keep that on our balance sheet, or we can reinvest that 40,000 into 10 computers that based on the current network difficulty will generate a new Bitcoin every seven months. So it is a compounding strategy. At the end of the day, we want to give our investors and shareholders the greatest risk-adjusted exposure to Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining that we can, and that feels like the best strategy. And look, we are fortunate that we've got the platform to be able to do that. Not every miner can keep reinvesting um, because they don't have the power, they don't have access to the chips, they don't have the team to build it out. And one thing we've very heavily invested in early is a team and a platform and a global portfolio of sites where we can continue to develop and build new uh, facilities. Well, I think the um, the follow-on question for that is, is what is the importance of um, Bitcoin as an asset class then? Um, I think the Canadians are finding out. It's one of those things like Bitcoin's got a few benefits and human nature is they struggle with compounding functions. They struggle to think a few years out and of risks. Like it's very much dealing the present. And one of the things of Bitcoin is, there's only 21 million, you can't change that. That level of scarcity in a world of exponential money printing is starting to be seen and understood, right? And previously you've had this kind of pull factor of Bitcoin where these halving events where the number of coins halves every four years that's released into the market caused this kind of price action to go up which attracts new entrants. But you've now got a push factor where central banks are pushing investors out of the current financial system saying, you know what, you can't hold cash because we're debasing it at such a rate that your loss in purchasing power does not make sense. Like even if you believe CPI statistics, if they're 7% in the US and you're getting paid 1% on cash, like you've got to have a pretty fixed mandate to think that that's a good risk return 
proposition. Um, you've then got the benefits of Bitcoin as an open monetary net network that's permissionless. It can't be censored. Um, it can't have sanctions put on it. And for people that want to move money to each other and not require technology companies or governments to sign off on every transaction, then that has value. And we're seeing more and more examples of that around um, the world where it's been put into action. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, a, a question I want to ask you as well in relation to your Bitcoin, sustainable Bitcoin mining is that if there's any additional demand from the market for clean Bitcoins, um, and you know, do you think there's a world where people would be happy to pay a premium, or this is just you know, uh, this is, doesn't exist? It has not existed. Um, it's been a great thing to say, and it makes you feel warm and fuzzy, and it's a really good um, narrative. But I'm yet to see someone who's willing to pay a dollar more for a Bitcoin that's mined sustainably. That's the fact, right? Um, yeah, that's really that's really fascinating because in other markets, people are willing to pay more for for things that are sustainable. But going forward, I'm kind of with where you're heading, which is like it's kind of inevitable. We see it in every other industry, and we are already seeing interest from um, you know long term investors, corporates, sovereign wealth fund type investors that are saying, "Well, hang on, I now want a Bitcoin exposure. I now think it's a really good uncorrelated asset. It's got a place in my portfolio." How do I get Bitcoin in a way that's compatible with my principles around ESG and sustainability? It's more the second order rather than the core driver. Yeah. And do, do carbon credits play a role in, you know, in the work that you do or, or not at all? Um, they play a little role. So to date, 98% of our power has been generated directly by renewable energy. Um, and we thought, well, 98% sense pretty good but let's go to 100 so we bought two percent worth of carbon credits to um to be able to say that we're now 100 percent renewable so what percentage of crypto mining is sustainable and where, where do you think this will be in 10 years dan again it's really hard to know there's some good um research houses that have done publications uh, i think about like the square and the arcs the coin shares fidelity may have done something on it as well, where they try to aggregate as much data points as they can to publish those statistics. But yeah, you'd be better off referring to them. I have heard relatively high numbers, you know, somewhere between 50 and 70%. Um, but you know, I, I think more the point is over time, it naturally gravitates towards a greener composition because the cheapest power is, cheap, is marginal cost renewables like you can't get cheaper than wind and solar where there's no cost of feedstock you're not paying for coal you're not paying for gas you're not paying for a feedstock um, so I think over time it's going to naturally become um, greener and greener probably just stepping out again um, it'd be really interesting to hear kind of you know your vision for iris and where you see the business in 10 years yeah so I think for us we view it as part operating business and part development platform and the operating business is what we've got today in terms of operating under construction, which is that 15 exahash, 500 megawatts, um, you know, that capacity that if it was plugged in today would be generating, you know, $800 million in annualized um, profit that's been executed over the next 12, 15 months. And then we've got the development platform, which involves identifying markets around the world where they do have these attributes of low cost excess renewables, problems that we can solve coming into the markets. So continuing to lock up sites, continuing to work with local energy companies and network providers to negotiate connection 
conditions into those um, markets is something that we're very focused on. We've got a great team pursuing. And I think beyond Bitcoin, um, if we ever need to go there, um, what, what we've also stumbled into is this entire macro thematic around the whole world being digitized and electrified. Like we are all going online. Like you see the metaverse, right? It's ready player one. Mm. It's the matrix. Yep. Like we're heading that way, whether we end up at some extreme example or somewhere else, yep. it doesn't matter. Like we're on that trajectory. Large, so it's large scale data. It's large scale data. And it comes down again to this dislocation between the real world and the digital world. You've got these exponential demand drivers, which are driving this insatiable appetite for data computing power. But your ability to service that in the real world, it's hard, right? Like you've got to find the power, you've got to find the capital, you've got to build the real world infrastructure. So you've got this kind of linear supply function and exponential demand function, and we're just looking to tap into that thematic. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Is there anything here at home that you're looking at? Is Australia anyone? Is there any need for us here at home, or is it is it just? When nothing here. <laughs> yeah, we haven't announced specifics of, of anything, but if you look back to our criteria around, you know, stable geographies, we're Aussies. Um, you look at markets where we can solve a problem, um, where there's been an overbuilding of renewables. Um, we need load. We need to solve the system flexibility piece, time of day, um, intraday power prices. I think there's a couple of markets in Australia people could look at and go, hmm, that might make sense. All right, there's the scoop. <laughs> uh, awesome. Look, Daniel, thanks so much for your time um, and I think best of luck going forward and we'll definitely continue to follow the Iris story and, and watch the company grow. So we really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for that conversation with Daniel, which I thought was super interesting. What about you, Blake? What did you find the most fascinating part of that conversation with him? Yeah, what's really interesting that I found, Tracy, was, you know, that Iris is selling down their crypto to, you know, expand and continue to leverage and grow their business where many other miners, uh, you know, are going long and saving up their Bitcoin. So it's really interesting to hear the different methodologies to how that they, you know, think they're going to be prosperous in the sector. Yeah, I guess he's still going long. He's just going long on his business in crypto. Exactly right. Yeah, look, I, I found that interesting also, and I loved I loved his passion towards the end there where he was talking about um, the other data points and Web3. He was really getting quite passionate about his Web3 thoughts on where, where that might tap in there also. And on that, Dan said that he'd be really happy to come back and answer any other questions in the future. So if there's something that you thought we may have missed, please send us an email to podcast at getbamboo.io. And on that note, we'll leave it there today. We want to know what you want to know, so please do send us an email to that podcast email and follow us on socials. All those details are in the show notes below. And remember that listener survey is out for one more week. Fill it in if you haven't already. And don't forget to rate and review us on the podcast app. See you next time. Bye for now. Crypto Curious is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. 
Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Crypto Curious are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act of 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Crypto Curious acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.